Welcome to another episode of Off the Dome Radio. It is Friday Eve, and we have a very, very special interview for you today. I was really excited for this one. I got chills thinking about it because this dude was on fire. Yeah, we have Tim Roberts, who is the founder of TrustPoint, which is a sales training company. So Tim and his company, they, they, they're not just a typical sales training company. He identified it as right brain infiltration. So he gives his company, what they pretty much do is they give... They give the they get into the psychology, motivation, and behavior of CEOs, sales managers, sales personnel. And he takes companies and he and he understands what they're doing, and he brings them to a higher level of how to truly connect with their salespeople, truly connect with the customers they go after. Um, and we really enjoy like he he talked about a lot of things that are applicable to my sales job, and applicable to just building any type of relationship with anybody and building trust and how you can go about interacting with people uh, on a daily basis. So he talks about how his his company, TrustPoint, was formed, uh, just the value it gives, like the motivation behind him starting that because he was in a job for 18 years that he wasn't fully passionate about. Um, But he started this. It took a big risk uh, starting this company. So we talked about him doing that. Uh, We asked him what he does to build trust with clients, and he talks about the two components that are necessary to break that wall with anybody that you meet for the first time. Um, And he also talks about the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset and how companies need to take a look at themselves internally and be like, hey, how can we, what can we do to grow our sales team? What can we do to grow our company? So I thought he had a lot of good things to say. Slager, what do you think about this? Yeah, he. Uh, this is one of my favorite people on the planet. After this, uh, he referred to himself as a mental interventionist. Uh, so I want all my salespeople to make sure that you, you re-listen to this, but he's not a sales trainer. He's a mental interventionist. Why are you truly making the decision that you're making? Can you see it or do you need him to enlighten you a bit? And he will for sure. One thing we got into was uh, how he adapted his sales strategy over time. He's been in the game for quite a while, so he's seen a lot of different things. Uh, And now he understands and knows what truly works uh, for him and his company. So uh, it was fun to hear how he has kind of altered his approach and the approach of his employees along the way as well. Uh, Then he gets into uh, some examples of his successful sales proposals. He got into uh, one that did not go as well because I had to ask about uh, any of those two. Um, But that's where he referred to his 18 years of mediocrity, which you'll hear him talk about. Um, And talk about how you should always adapt your style depending on the type of person you're speaking with. So you need to change your communication style. You're not going to always be able to communicate and connect and build relationships the same way with different people. Uh, and fin- finally, he gets into what a healthy relationship between sales management and personnel looks like. And this is a great question that uh, my Tim asked, uh, offered to him as my Tim, uh, asked Tim Roberts is, how do you build that healthy relationship? Because in a lot of jobs, not just sales, it seems that there is a big disconnect between the manager and the person under them. And it's like, oh, they shouldn't be managing. So how do you build a healthy relationship? Uh, And it's also, he talks about understanding the DNA of good and bad salespeople and the importance of lifelong learning. So we really connected, Tim and I connected with Tim on just our simple slogan of naturally curious. Tim Roberts was a big fan of that because he believes being naturally curious drives the lifelong learning, which drives you to be the successful person that you are envisioning. So if you are not constantly learning, you are stagnant. You are not growing. So back to the, the growth mindset uh, that he was all about. So this, this interview was electric. 
Uh, it's a very high caliber level of thinking uh, due to Tim Roberts joining us. And it's just, it's very fun. It's very fun because it's uh, applicable and it's applicable to a lot of things outside of sales. But without further ado, the man who needs no further introduction, one of the greatest mental interventionists we've come to know, Tim Roberts. All right, so uh, Tim Roberts, uh, thank you for having us at, at Trust Point here. Yeah, grateful to have you. Yeah. Uh, so if you just want to kind of give us a little recap, uh, who you are, what you do, and then I'd like to dive into your journey and path and how you got here because you said this was not where you thought you'd be. So I want to get into that right away. But a little, little background for our listeners as well. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, I have a company here in Indianapolis. It is a, I'm a Sandler training franchise, and uh, my company is called Trustpoint. And we have, I mean, if you think about Sandler worldwide, we're really known for um, sales management training and sales training. Along the way, we've developed a few more uh, different expertise um, negotiation training. There's a lot of people that wouldn't take sales training for any reason. They're terrified of two words, role play. Uh, <laughs> we understand that. Um, but if you say negotiations training to them, that reframes it completely. So I'm the kind of cat I spent, I've spent the last 21 years, 11 hours a day, five days a week, just hanging out with salespeople and sales leaders. I can tell you who's naughty and nice pretty quick. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you you alluded to just you make small changes with things to have a different effect on how someone might think about things uh, in terms of role play versus negotiations. Uh, how does that play a big part in what you do daily then? Well, there is there is a, a gentleman in the UK. He was the, the he's a performance manager. His name his name is Sir David Brailsford. It was David Brailsford. He has a concept called the aggregation of marginal gains. Um, I, you know, we're, we're paid to understand the DNA of best-in-class sales leaders, sales organizations, salespeople. But where I really win is if we can discover something they don't know about themselves, that the manager can't figure out about one of their performers or a group of their performers on a sales team. Imagine there's 10 people on a sales team. It could be a thousand, but imagine 10. There's typically two that are really good, the winners. Law of opposites is in effect. Two that are not so good, the losers. And then there's a group that is the movable middle. And we refer to them actually as at-leasters, and it's because their belief is, well, at least we're not those guys down there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's not that anybody is good or bad. It's that the leadership hasn't figured out something about them that they might not know. Small gains. Is it a piece of head trash? It's, it's probably not a technique. Is it a belief they have? I'm not allowed to call on the top. You know, I've got to earn the right to get past purchasing. What is it? So we're people who are really paid to discover. You know, think of the self-awareness piece. Most people really aren't in full awareness about what their strengths and weakness and the gap in between is. We're sort of paid to figure that out. Gotcha. So it's the small things, real, real, real small. Yeah. What, what are some of the more common things that people don't normally know about themselves? Is there anything that you, you find that's 
that's more prevalent across the board, or does it just depend? Well, it depends. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, some people find out going through our program that they hate sales with all yeah. their heart and soul. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll, welcome, welcome to Sandler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and, and we're more than uh, happy to help them find themselves. We've got some mm-hmm. great success stories in that regard, but it is different, and I'll tell you why, Tim. Um, I have done uh, personally like a little over 2,160 one-on-one two-hour interviews. I'm really paid to figure out the DNA of best-in-class performers. And what I do is I take them back in time to age six. Mm -hmm. Guys, if I can figure out who you were at age six, I can tell you with some clarity how you will sell, manage, lead, or serve to this day. And that's because people talk in codes, filters, and patterns. And if you listen to the codes, filters, and patterns, and, and that's where some most companies, they just want results. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they want the bottom line to grow, they want the top line to grow. And so they don't understand what's really going on. What is the neural experience, the wiring? Can I give you one small example? Absolutely, yes. One time, a guy in an interview, a oh, wonderful human, they wanted to hire him. He was a fabulous human. But he started off the interview, um, became transparent um, pretty, pretty early, and that's a good thing. Selling is about creating transparency, vulnerability. And he said, I don't know, Tim, when I was a little boy, life just came easy. I didn't have to work that hard in school. I didn't have to work that hard in sports. I was good at all of it. Life just came easy. And, and throughout the two-hour interview, the guy just, the recurring filter code pattern was life is easy you don't have to work that hard and so towards the end of the interview I said I love you my brother this is so cool this has been such a great interview hey hey round it off don't share the exact number how much money have you made each of the last five years he said Tim I don't know somewhere between 32 and 38 thousand dollars okay well that's not very much money in selling and I said I love that you are so cool It's it's a beautiful thing hey Last question, what's your wife do for a living? Neurosurgeon. <laughs> okay, so, so guess what? I mean, you know, he has found sugar mama. Mm-hmm. Mama found a little boy that she could take care of. Life is easy and he's not gonna work hard. And so I called my, my client and said, please, he's a wonderful human, but don't do it. Um, and, and they said, Tim Roberts, you're wrong. This guy has wonderful human skills. He is the best. He's going to build great relationships. We need a relationship specialist. And I said, he is. Going to give your company a great name, but he's not going to win new business. Um, they had to let him go four months later. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, life is easy. doesn't have to work that hard. And, and so when they, when they said, you know, you got to go out and hunt and make sales calls every day, it's not his thing wonderful human. I would never judge him for that. But in his role as a salesperson, the code, the pattern is life is easy. You don't have to work that hard. Those are small things that people are going to miss. And then if I can flesh those out and then see if we can get them to reframe what the opportunity might be. That guy, we, could we make him good at sales? Yeah, if we could get him to reframe the idea of life is easy, you don't have to work hard. Now, it doesn't mean you have to work hard, but you have to work. Right, right. So it, this is a very precise niche that you've, you've discovered for yourself. I'm interested how you started 
to form this and how this came to be for Tim Roberts? I know you said you went to Xavier. We we won't hold that against you that yeah, much. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Go dogs. But yeah. uh, I am interested if you wouldn't mind taking us back a little how you got to this point. Because when you were, we talked on the phone the other day, uh, I was very fascinated with uh, what people hire you to do. But like, how does someone create that type of niche? It wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I, I really was a little boy when I grew up. I wanted to be the president of the United States. I don't wish that anymore. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, I, I wanted, I wanted it for justice and public service. That was my motivators. And I got on Capitol Hill at a very young age, and oh boy, just public service and justice. Well, I found out what this political thing really means. And, um, and it turned out I worked for a bad guy, and by bad guy I, meant, I mean verbal abuser. Um, he, he beat me up every day of the week, seven days of the week for a couple years, and, and I just came home. I came back to Indianapolis a broken man. I mean, self-esteem was whacked. And my father said, it's not much, but I'll give you a company car and a weekly paycheck. Well, the company car was a Mercury Zephyr station wagon. Gentlemen, for a 26-year-old, that's not a swagmobile. <laughs> um, so I was going to be in a little bit of trouble there. And I started selling for my father. And I have to tell you something. Um, I lost 18 years of my life to mediocrity. I started making money. So I thought I was good. At age 42, my father said, you've earned the right. You are now going to be president CEO of the company. Here you go. Have a good life. And I said, Dad, I quit. I'm leaving. And he said, well, what, what do you mean? I go, I've got two, got two brothers here. They can do it. I hate this. And he said, what do you mean you hate this? And I said, Dad, I hate selling with all my heart and soul. I hate salespeople. And I dream of buyers going down in a fiery plane crash every night of the week. <laughs> and, and, and then I didn't know what to do. I left and I didn't know what to do. And guess what I found out? I got nothing. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an architect. I'm not an engineer. What am I going to do? And I thought the only thing I could do was sell. And then I thought, reframe it. What if I saw selling differently? What if I viewed it as honorable? What if I learned how to do it the right way and I came across this ad for Sandler training. It was called the Sandler Sales Institute at the time. And my first thought was, oh boy, I could be Tony Robbins. <laughs> and, but guess what I found out? You have to go out and sell sales training. And guess who's under more scrutiny than any other salesperson? A sales trainer. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't see you, that you're 10 times better than them or their best guy, why would they hire you? Sure. And then I had to really fight through it. What I had to do is undo all my old neurals, my old beliefs about selling, and I had to reinvent myself. And I found Sandler to be very honorable. And that's all I was attached to, honor, integrity, and a high level of ethics. And I thought, I could become the defender of salespeople. Doesn't that sound corny? Doesn't that sound weird? <laughs> but, but I thought, if, if I see it as honorable and I bring honor to the profession, maybe this could be an experience. Now, the first uh, three or four years were hard for me because I still had my old 
traditional ways of selling, selling lots of features and benefits, doing all the cheap stuff, quality service, expertise, all the same thing everybody else said. And so how did I start doing things differently? And that's when I learned that, wait a minute, I'm not in the sales training business. I'm in the mental intervention business. Hmm. So I went through a two-year certification in Gestalt therapy. And then I, later on, I took another year of that because I wanted to know how they did it. How does a therapist do an intervention? Because I found out that you could teach a lot of salespeople. I mean, you know, maybe if you know what, what's holding them back. And it, what holds them back is messages mom and dad gave them when they were children. And so I started going, this is honorable. I bring value to people's lives every day of the week. It's not, I have the best job in the city of Indianapolis. And I really mean that, guys. We get to bring value to people's lives every day of the week because we help them discover something they didn't know. The Sandler part, the methodology, that's easy. That can be the easy part of it, a system, a process. Most sales organizations are winging it on their alleged good people skills. And let me say that clearly, winging it on their alleged good people skills. They don't know the anatomy of a sale. So I, I hope you can hear it. I got a lot of passion oh, yeah. for, for what we do. Um, this has become very engaging because people really don't, most people are accidental salespeople. Nobody ever kissed their kid goodnight and said, you're going to be the greatest salesperson that ever <laughs> Is that fair? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're out there, but there's, there's not very many of them. And then, and then company owners say all the time, Tim, we're looking for a people person. And I go, watch what you're wished for. And because that's not the answer all the time because, you know, they have high need for approval. They don't like a rejection. And sales is full of a ton of a rejection. Right. So you talked about like the mental intervention business. So obviously to do that, you have to establish trust with this person. So what what do you find is the most successful way about building trust with someone? Because that's, that's, from my experience, it's one of the tougher things to do in sales is how do you get someone on your side to trust you? Um, your question, I wish more people would be have the kind of cognizance, awareness to ask that very question. We prove on a daily basis that people do not know how trust works. Everybody thinks they do. We can prove on a daily basis that people don't even understand what the word rapport means. Mm -hmm. And yet they go around saying, I'm really good with relationships, Tim. And I'll say, cool, tell me what rapport means. And, and they, they don't know. They don't know the dynamics of trust. Trust building for us is critical because no one, no business owner, they don't really want to share their sins. They don't want to tell us they've made a mistake in their hiring of salespeople or that their margins are down or that they're getting a lot of thinking overs, the competition is beating them up. They don't want to come clean. So the rules for trust um, really are about two words. And uh, Tim, I think I was sharing this with you a number of years ago, I hired a PhD in clinical psych to teach me about the word trust. Her name was Dr. Maria Bauer. And Dr. Bauer, she gave me to start off a lot of dissertations on the word trust. And two words kept appearing. 
transparency and vulnerability and they both come with risk so think about a, a sales call what you do you're paid to find the truth and the truth is either no or yes that's it and so how do you get somebody to be truthful so that you have to create transparency so if I ask you what is your skill how would you rate yourself zero to ten on creating transparency and, and most people would say, oh, seven, eight, and then I'll go, excellent, I love that. What's your evidence? Can you prove any criteria on why you rated that number? And then they go, well, I, you know, it could be three or four. You know, I'm, I'm sort of just guessing there. So how do you create transparency where the person on the other side of the table is willing to become vulnerable? What's your strategy for creating vulnerability? Can I tell you something? This is the truth. Our team knows this here. Four grown men a week cry in this office. And it's been that way for a number of years. Why is that? You can see I'm five foot nothing. My name is Timmy Roberts. <laughs> I got blue eyes. I can't hurt anybody. And so why does that happen? Because we create a judgment-free zone. They've got to feel like they're in a, a gestaltist would say, a safe container. They've got to believe they are in a safe environment, free of all judgment. And so once transparency happens, then vulnerability happens. We know there's two rules. No one, no one on earth likes to be sold. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, think about it. If you go to the department store on Saturday, the clerk comes up and says, can I help you, sir? What are you going to say? I just say, no, I'm just looking around. Just looking. Yep. <laughs> and you might even put your hand out like that, which mm -hmm. is like you're pushing their energy field away. Yeah, right. Don't, you're getting too close. Stay back. Yep. You can almost feel the pressure. So in selling, how do you get rid of all that pressure? The second rule is people would rather stay tethered to the devil that they know. For, for, for so many people, their number one challenge is getting their prospect to fire the company that they work with right now. That's not an easy thing to do because that means that owner is going to have to sit across from somebody else and fire them. And it might be a 10 or 15 year relationship. How do you fire a 10 or 15 year relationship? Well, some people are cold and can do it very easily. And then for most people, it's very difficult, so they won't have that conversation. So to create trust, we're also paid to have the tough conversations. You know, think of the book, Fierce Conversations or Crucial Conversations. I'm paid often, every day of the week, to look at a president or CEO, VP of sales, and say, I don't know, I think you're the problem. Can we talk about that? <laughs> Isn't, isn't that fair? Mm -hmm. Because nobody's ever said that to them before. And the fact is, if I listen for a while, because I hang out with salespeople and sales leaders all the time, I know they're the problem. And so, but if I don't judge them, and if I, if, like I've said before, I radiate a lot of love, it's okay with me. In your role, you're allowed to be the problem. You were put on this planet as a 10. I can't change it. But in your role as a sales leader, you're a four. And I am allowed to call you out on that. A quick example, sales, sales leaders all the time will say, Tim, our guys aren't hitting managers and they're not doing the behavior. I, I don't even know where they're at. I don't know how many calls they're making a week. Okay, well, expect what you tolerate. And you allow them to do that. 
And as soon as you say those words, expect what you tolerate, you should see their micro expression. It's really not a micro expression, it's more of a macro. Yeah. They will move in their chair, invariably. And they'll just go, ah. And so how can I help them get to a place where they go, Tim, I think I'm the problem. In a conversation, for so many salespeople, they often get down to, how much is this gonna cost us? Or we gotta have the lowest price. Wouldn't you like to move a conversation from how much does this cost to can you help me? Mm. Can you hear the difference? Big shift. You can feel the difference. Big shift. There's a big shift right there. And so salespeople don't know how to be patient. In order to build trust, you have to be very patient, especially in that first meeting. You have to have a belief that says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if we're a good fit. And what do amateur salespeople think all the time? Tim, they don't know that we can help them out. You know, that's probably because you're telling them you can, <laughs> just like everybody else. Right. So how do you change the conversation that you're having right now? And by the way, selling should be nothing more than a conversation. That's it. But wouldn't it be helpful if you knew what you were doing? <laughs> and, and not to help you, but to help the person on the other side. I've said this so many times. I do not care whether I win the business or not. I don't care whether it's a no or a yes. I do not care. To be honorable, I'm going to be a facilitator and see if I can help them discover the truth. I'm going to hold them accountable along the way but I'm gonna do it with my nurturing parent ego state. Can't do it with my critical parent ego state. You're making a mistake, you guys do it all wrong. No, I gotta make sure that they're okay every step of the way. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that Absolutely. makes perfect sense. Thank you for that. So, so in part of that, <clears throat> getting them to be transparent and eventually get to that vulnerable stage, are there any steps in your process to where you start first? of that transparency or vulnerability to, to kind of break that wall down. How do you know that? Where'd you get that? You're, it's a genius. I can back it up, but tell me about why you asked that. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't been in sales as much as Tim prior in prior life. I, I did a little bit of sales, but uh, through just also, as I'm wired, I understand that if you want someone to get to your level, you have to start that playing field. And I've, I've led a group of men before in the past in, in certain roles to where we did an exercise where we were exposing some, some deep truths about ourselves uh, to get to root issues. And I was like, I'm going to start. And so you had to open, I love that. You had to open the field up to play ball. But if you say, all right, I would like for you to start, like they're going to shiver in their boots, right? But if, if they see you just go right into it, like, all right, he's not playing around. We're, we're getting into it. So I, I'm curious if, if that's part of your process of like, hey, this is something that I've done and worked on and, and made a mistake on here. Like, let me, let me share something with you first. I'm glad uh, your <laughs> listeners got, got to hear that. It's critical. In, in my Gestalt training, the Gestaltists will tell you there's these things that's called the eight relational needs, what all humans need for a relationship to be safe. And, and one of those is initiate. 
And what initiate means is you go first. So you know the story I was just telling about 18 years of mediocrity. I lost 18, I wallowed in mediocrity for 18 years. My wife doesn't want me to say that too many times, <laughs> but, but I view that as a gift. And so that's a story that I'll often leak or share. I've made more sales sins than anyone, and, and that enables me to be an effective trainer. But I want to share it first. I, I, I kind of want to say, oh, I've sucked long before you. <laughs> and to this day, I can blow up a sales call. But now I know why and where I did. So your message of going first is huge. It drops the psychological barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it you, you know, when I talk about, and I do it in speeches all the time, I talk about my 18 years of mediocrity. You can just see people in the audience and they're going, oh man, thank the Lord, I'm only seven years into my mediocrity, you know. <laughs> um, so for me, it's a gift and I want to share it um, in a real way because what it says is I had to rewire my own brain. And it also says it's okay to fail. You gotta fail in order to win. We actually, out here a couple days a week, have like what we call I Suck Tuesdays and I Suck Wednesdays. <laughs> That's awesome. Our sessions, they're called a community of practice, a cop. And we need everybody very vulnerable. And we want people to come in and say, let me go first. I suck. Here's where I blew up a call. Because what they're also saying is, I won't let that happen again. Mm-hmm. I love that concept. And by the way, that validation I just gave you, that's another key part of trust. Validation, security, and acceptance. People want to be secure in a relationship. People want to be accepted for who they are. And all of us need some validation. Yeah. We need some love. We humans are really good at one-upmanship. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and we, need to get out of, we need to get rid of us, right. subordinate your ego, to the service of others and make it about them. That's rule one in selling. It's not about you, it's about them. That's where features and benefits get so many people in trouble. That's good. I love the approach though, because it's just the deeper level. It's not the first layer of the onion that that you're going after. Um, So you said you'd studied uh, for two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, What did you study in school? Is this a trick question? Are you trying to make me look? No, I, I'm, I'm curious because <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. am 180 opposite what I studied yeah. in school. Yeah, I am too. I am that accidental uh, salesperson. Okay, uh, there's, there's no question. My degree from that other school. <laughs> I'll go ahead and I'll give you your go dogs. <laughs> <laughs> he who will not be named. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well done. Um, I, uh, my degree, my undergraduate degree, was in um, it's, it was called urban studies. Okay. And it was an offshoot of political science because I told you at a very young age, seventh grade or something, I wanted to get into yeah. politics or what I called public service at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was very honorable. And um, so everything I did was, um, was going to be about how do you plan cities? How do cities work? How do people work? What is all the, so it was a, 
an offshoot of political science, and then I started to work on my master's at the University of Dayton. I can say that name, is that okay? Or probably still Go Flyers. Not. Yeah, Go Flyers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, in in uh, public administration. Okay. Um, but then along the way, I started working for this congressman, so, you know, that, yeah. that sort of stopped everything. So how has what you studied in school on paper helped you to this point now? I mean, you, you had your time on Capitol Hill where it kind of broke you down. You had to rebuild. Uh, how does that fuel into today? Well, of studying the poli sci and yeah, doing that, and it does. And I will tell you, uh, from I, from Xavier, I am a classic two point six seven guy, and so I worked more on emotional intelligence than I did IQ, more EQ than IQ, because I wanted to do people things and leadership things. I'm a guy uh, very truly that suffers from HNA, high need for approval. Um, and and that, that it's a good thing it works for you, and it's a very dangerous thing. But that liberal arts approach to life sort of gave me continuous learning as a core value. Mm. And so in, in the world of sales training now, it is still about continuous learning. We find all the time that people are in sales. And so I can ask, well, what was the what was your favorite sales book that you ever read? Okay, you know you're going to see people start squirming in their yeah. chair then. And so I'll say to the company owner, well, cool. Where's your sales library? Is it up on the second floor, or is it down the hall? You know, where's that at? And and they're just sitting there going nothing. Well, people will develop a fixed mindset. One of the things I'm looking for in an interview or for a sales candidate or an organization, do they have a fixed mindset or do they have a growth mindset? And that's from Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. And it's a very powerful study, what do people show up with? And there's a lot of companies that really have a corporate culture of fixed mindset. This is the way we do it. And continuous learning, a growth mindset, keep you know, the disruptors nowadays, you know, there's a lot of companies that have a picture of Amazon on their wall. Mm -hmm. And what that says is Amazon can get into our business, can get into your business, into anybody's business they want, unless you have an innovative disruptor mindset. Mm -hmm. So for us, if I go into a meeting, I really got to get that owner to go, huh, I didn't see sales like that. I didn't see sales leadership like that. Now they're starting to think again instead of just continuing to do. So the background from political science, all those things, no, it was just about um, I was taught how to learn and think differently. Imagine looking at a city. It's what we have to do in our great city of Indianapolis here. How do we look at road streets differently? How do we look at crime differently than we do? How do we look at education differently than what we've been doing? Mm -hmm. And that's the, in my way, in my view, that's the only way we're going to pull out of it is disrupt what we're doing right now. Is it effective? Yes. Can it be more effective? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's powerful stuff. Yeah. Tim, I want to I want to go back to when uh, you were in sales. You said for 18 years you worked as a, as a salesperson. Is that it was? And you said you it, mediocrity, you, you changed the way you sold as you went into to Sandler. What would you go back and tell 
yourself, if you were starting on that day one as a salesperson, what would you tell yourself now? Like, what did you learn from that? How would you have done things differently? Um, everything. Um, I'm, I've said this a lot. I wish I had every single sales call back. Really? You know, I wish <laughs> I want a complete do-over um, because I did not understand how it works. My sales strategy, based on this uh, psychological condition, high need for approval, was this. If they like me, they will buy. Mm. My father, who owned the company, said, um, Tim, the customer is always right. So guess what my belief was? The customer is always right. And so the customer would say, we need the best price. Okay, I'll get you the best price. Or I would go in and do the cheap stuff like looking on the wall, see if there was something I could relate to, and then I would start talking about that to see if I could develop some common interest. And I would get them talking. I would feel really good subconsciously. They like me. This conversation is going good. And then at the end of it, they would say, Tim, I've only got about 10 minutes late. What do you got? And I would hand them the brochure and start telling them quality service expertise and all the cheap stuff. They would say, great, we love you. Can you shoot me some prices? Bam shot them some prices and then they would go into the witness protection plan <laughs> gone hidden ghost in me voicemail jail however you want to call it <laughs> voicemail jail i love i've never that. heard witness protection i'm going to use that yeah That's yeah awesome. it's the truth it yeah. resonates with a lot of sales people yeah. because they'll just roll their eyes you know i know 20 people who are in the witness protection program right now <laughs> And so, so we have a rule here at Sandler that says you can't get mad at somebody for doing something you didn't tell them they couldn't do. So one mm -hmm. of our steps is what we call an upfront contract, gaining agreement as to how a meeting will flow or what will happen, giving them permission to say no, or exploring their decision-making process. Here's the bottom line to answer your question, Tim. I didn't understand what the word qualify meant. I don't think to this day that salespeople are good at qualifying their prospects. They're happy if they get a meeting and, and they believe that the burden of proof, and buyers believe this, the battle in selling is always the same, the battle of beliefs. What the buyer believes about salespeople and what the salesperson believes about themselves. So if we think about what do buyers believe about salespeople? They, they believe that you're going to lie. They believe that you're greedy. They believe they don't have to return your emails. They believe they don't have to return your calls. They believe that they can cancel a meeting anytime they want. They believe that they have all the power and all the leverage. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. We see it all the darn time. Okay. But if my beliefs are greater than that, I won't let it happen. So instead of the burden of proof being on me to prove that I'm a great sales trainer or I have a great widget or a great product or service, isn't some of the burden on them to prove that they need me, that they're willing to fire their current relationship, that they have a real problem that they need to get rid of? So when you go in there to qualify, Sam, we call it pain. Do they have evidence of pain? 
Here's what nine out of 10 salespeople will say when they come back from a call, Colin, you come back from a call and I'll say, how did that call go, Colin? And I'm gonna hear RRG, really, really good. (laughs) (laughs) Invariably, that's what they're gonna say. Okay, can I do any forecasting based on that? Can I plan what to do with my marketing budget or buy a new piece of capital equipment or anything else based on really, really good? Right. And, and managers and leaders accept that all the time. Evidence would be, I have evidence that they have a real live problem, a pain, that they want to get rid of. Evidence that the cost of that pain is holding them back. Evidence that it is actually affecting that person personally. That's why I like to call up instead of just a a purchasing agent is incentivized to get a lower price. Mm. A purchasing agent knows that if they say, we gotta have the best price, that 92% of salespeople will go back and try to get a lower price. Or salespeople will say cheap things like, well, we're not gonna be the cheapest person in town. That purchasing agent is giggling at that moment. They're thinking, is that all you got? Yeah. You're going to play the limbo lineup now, and I'm going to see how low you're going to go. Salespeople don't know what to do when because they're not thinking, isn't some of the burden of proof on them? So I'll refer to evidence-based selling a lot. What is the evidence they have a problem? What is the evidence it's costing them? What is the evidence affects them? What is the evidence that they have I and A? influence and authority. What is the evidence? Are they willing and able to pay for my product or service? And there's a big gap between willing and able. They may be willing but not able. They may be able but not willing. And so what are my beliefs about money? What are my beliefs about where I call? Do I call down here or do I call way up here? You, you should be spending most of your time. I don't refer to the C-suite very often. I refer to it as the D-suite, the decision-making suite. Mm. Where do you think you belong? So qualifying really comes back to evidence. Um, I've often encouraged salespeople, the only thing you should take in on the first call, the only thing, never take in brochures, never take your PowerPoint in, never do any of that cheap stuff. You take in a yellow legal pad. And would you bring me back the facts of the business case? That's all I want. The facts of the case, not with your bias, not with your, what is the evidence that we might decide? Because what's a buyer going to do? A buyer wants one thing badly your price. Why is that? They're going to give it to their current relationship. Just to negotiate. And and that's it. And they know that all they have to do is say, we're interested in you guys. Really liked what you said today. Because they're trying to create this condition called sales horny. They know if they can get the salesperson emotionally involved Here's the rule in negotiations. The person with the greater need loses. Hmm. And there's a lot of salespeople out there that need the business. I gotta hit my quota. I got I'm you know, I'm behind, whatever it is. Boy, does that does that give the buyer all the leverage in the world? So how do you mitigate that? 
You do that by understanding what the word qualifying means. It has nothing to do with features and benefits. I love your question. No, it's, I, that's it's good. a really fair. I love your answer. Thanks. Appreciate it. <clears throat> I, people will say, I, "Until I understand, you got to qualify." They don't know what that means. Yeah. Ask them what it means. Well, there was smoke coming out of the smokestack, and the parking lot was full, so there's people in there working. Okay, that's not qualified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Tim, you did just kind of allude to some changes that you've made throughout uh, your sales experience. I'm curious in how you've, in other ways, adapted. You've been in the sales game a uh, long enough time to see it change in a lot of different ways. So, I'm curious in what are some of the major ways that you've seen the sales game in general change and how have you adapted your approach and business to alter to that as well? Um, another great question from you guys and I'll tell you why because it, it has changed so much in the last five years mm -hmm. and when I look at the next two or three years artificial intelligence alone the technology changes. Um, there's a number of companies that can do amazing things. Now, do I believe that salespeople are going away? No. M um, great salespeople, people that know what they're doing, are not going away for any reason. Um, I, heck, is my own business very vulnerable? The way people learn now, um, Sandler, um, Sandler, we understand that instructor-led training still leads, but we understand that there's things, things called learning software, and there's a lot of companies develop sales training software. And then now there's this space called micro-learning. There's a younger group of salespeople that are coming up now. They're all going to be rock stars, but they don't want the textbooks. They don't, they're not going to sit there, you know, what is all this? What, what, you take notes? What is that? They don't, they're not getting that. They're looking at their phone, and they're going, do you have the role play on this phone? So the changes that we make in technology, the changes that we're making in communication are hard. Here's a bigger piece though. Decision making has changed greatly because of technology. They already know a great deal about the competitive landscape. They've already narrowed it down to three to five companies they want to talk to based on everything that you've put on your website. So going into a meeting, they're already 57 or so percent of the way down the line. And my experience is most salespeople are, do not fully understand. I've said this a lot. In Sandler's methodology, the decision-making process step is, one, is the third of our qualifying steps. And this is where 75% of all deals are blown. Most salespeople suffer from another sales disease besides HNA, and it's called OCW, one contact weakness. They're not going wide and deep. They're just dating one person in the building. They've only got one white knight. Well, the fact of the matter is decision-making is rarely coming from one individual now. Even if you're talking to the CEO, the owner, um, she probably is going to rely on somebody else or he is going to rely on somebody else along the way. And salespeople don't have a strategy for if there's seven decision makers, what is the process that they will use? For me personally, I'm going to count the votes before I give a presentation, before I give my price and everything that we can do. 
I'm going to count the votes. You know, if, is it five to two? Is it 10 to two? Is it three to two? And what do I need to know to see if I can change that? For me, briefly, gentlemen, I call it my Coke and popcorn strategy. I'm going to see if I can get a fight going on in their boardroom. <laughs> I'm going to, and then I'm going to eat the popcorn, drink the Coke, and watch the show. And the way I do that is just go, hey, Tim, I got the funny feeling you want to do this, but Colin, I think you hate it with all your heart and soul. How come I feel like that? Yeah. And that's exactly how I do it. I'm very weird in a sales call. Okay. But it's really between them. I have nothing to sell. He would like to spend the money differently than you would. They've got to fight it out. Why don't I just fuel that fight instead of taking that drug called hopium, <laughs> which salespeople are addicted to, you know, where they walk out of a meeting and they oh, I did a great presentation. Yeah. Witness protection plan, here it comes. <laughs> and then they're in trouble. Do they know exactly when, the date and time, they will get their no or yes? I met with a prospect this morning. I can tell you my no or yes is coming Friday, August the 2nd at 11 o'clock, and they're going to call me because I don't chase anybody. And what do most salespeople do? They put on their sales pest outfit, <laughs> and they just start calling, begging, don't know what happens. And so why don't, why don't you ask them to call you back? They'll do it if you ask nice. If you really develop trust, if you've really developed rapport, you've conducted yourself honorably, shouldn't they have to do something? Don't you want to test the strength? And one way of testing the strength is, I don't know, Colin, would it make sense? Why don't you get your calendar out? You know, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go back. You're going to talk to these other two people, blah, 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 blah. Okay, can we agree what date and time you'll call me with my no or my yes? Can you imagine that as a game changer? Can you imagine that, how that would shorten your selling cycle? And isn't that what all salespeople want? A shorter selling cycle? Yeah. Isn't that what the owner of the company wants? A shorter selling cycle? Absolutely. Wow. Instead of wonderful PowerPoint presentations and then poof, think it over. Witness protection plan. Yeah. Yeah. Get, get rid of that. Yeah. You know, for me in my 18 years of mediocrity, I was very comfortable with the phrase, think it over. At least I didn't hear no. But guess what think it over is? It's a no. It's a no. <laughs> <laughs> but I was such a nice guy, they didn't want to say no to me. I empowered them because of my need for approval not to say no to me. And subconsciously, they'd be going, I don't want to hurt his feelings. Yeah. Man, besides, he'll come back next month to buy me lunch again. I was just driving around buying people lunch. <laughs> I, I, don't, my wife's not going to hear this. Is she? I'll get in trouble if she finds that. If she, if she doesn't have iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud, we're good. <laughs> or access to our website. I better go in and apologize right away. <laughs> we'll be sure to plug an apology in this. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks very much. There, there's a lot of pitfalls salespeople face, and they're, they're not aware uh, Tim, I'm curious, what did your last uh, war in the boardroom that you started, how'd that end? Um, I have a couple of really uh, clear examples. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I will say this. First of all, um, I am a Sandler guy, and I am very disciplined to the methodology. 
If you watched me, if you had a hidden camera, if you were a fly on a wall and you watched me in 10 calls, you would say, my gosh, he does the same thing every time and they have no idea what he's doing mm -hmm. because it's a conversation. It's usually third or fourth week out here in our program. Somebody will look at me and go, hey, you did that to me. Um, and so uh, I'm thinking of one in particular. Uh, permission not to say the name. Oh, is, is that, that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was told at the um, start of the meeting that um, the votes were five to two, and I knew the re I knew the uh, the two players, and I knew very much why they were not going to vote for me. It was a political battle um, on the inside. When I got to uh, the meeting, there were 18 people in the room, mm -hmm. so somebody, the two, stacked the deck. And, um, and so you have to know what to do. And Sandler training is really about what do you do when? Are you highly trained and well-disciplined? Most salespeople, they're, um, they're, they, they don't practice their craft. How many hours a day do you spend practicing the skills that feed your family? So here at our place, our performance center, we are practicing what do you do when? So I walked into the room and immediately I just started thinking, hmm, Okay, I got to dance with Sandler. What am I going to do? And so the first thing subconsciously, um, unconscious competence, I think the pros would tell you, came to my mind is how do I divide and conquer? How do I get the spotlight off of me and get them talking? And how do I set an upfront contract at the beginning that says, hey, everybody, this is so much fun. 18 people here. This is great. Um, let's all agree, at the end of this meeting, if I haven't piqued your interest, if you hate my guts, if you want to throat punch me, that you say no. And, and let's do something else. How about this? Can we agree? I'll go around the room and I'll count. And we'll, I'll ask each one of you. We'll do a live. Is that okay if we do that? They wanted a presentation. So I walked over to my computer knowing they wanted a presentation and I knew exactly what to do. Act like my computer was broken and it didn't work. So I closed up my computer and I said, can we just talk? Can I ask some questions? And I started getting everybody engaged. And I could see that the needle was moving. So at the end of a couple hour meeting, I said, okay, we agreed. You know, let's go around the room. Let's talk about it. And I made them all give me the vote. So I know the social psychology behind conformity. First seven people said yes. Guess what happens after that? It's picking up the pace. I got, I saved, I knew who to save for the last. Mm -hmm. And that person, um, he's a man. And, um, and so, you know, let's make up a name, Bobby. So I said, you know, Bobby, how about you? And um, um, knowing that it was 17 yeses in a row. Wow. And, and Bobby, Bobby just looked at me and he said, um, very interesting, Mr. Roberts. And I, I did my best Sandler move. I said, cool. What's that mean? <laughs> That's awesome. Because I don't know what those words mean, right? right? Yeah. And, uh, and this person, Bobby, says, um, you know, I have the funny feeling um, that you've been working us the entire time. With that question, I'm certain you have. Mm -hmm. It's a yes. Get your calendar out and we'll schedule a meeting. Wow. Amazing. But, but you have to know what to do yeah. when. And instead of walking in going, uh-oh, you know, Sandler took over. That's all I got. I mean, that's, I'm a Sandler guy. And so just use the system and don't do anything else. And so I walked him right through the methodology. Is, is that an example that you were oh, looking yeah. for? How, how, do you, how do you do that? Do you know what to do 
when. Wow. And you got 18 and now. Yeah. And and so in, in a great in a great strong relationship with that company ever yeah. since. But I mean, what is I mean, one of our best guys in here, we call him the legendary Chris Dorr. Legendary. I mean, he believes in one thing. Can you outwit, outthink, outplay the competition? And that's sort of where Sandler helps. Can we outwit, outthink, and outplay? It's kind of a game, right? Yeah. That comes from being the most prepared, though, too. It comes from being the most prepared. Do you know what to do when? What do you do when somebody says, we got to have your best price? What do you do when somebody says, okay, you got your the last two finalists. Time for your best and final offer. That's called BAFO. Do you understand that's a negotiating strategy? Do you know they got you hooked into the conversation? They got you to spill all your candy. They got you to give all your pricing and everything. And they got one last move. Best and final offer. And you know they're going to stay with the company, the devil that they've been working with. They just want to see if they can get your price lower so they can make that other company go lower. Can you sit there and go, aw, he's going to baffle me. That's so cute. I'm not going to let him get away with that. Do you know what to do when? Salespeople don't practice their craft. And, and that's what happened to me in my 18 years of mediocrity. I just was going out, mm-hmm. passing out brochures, low price. Sure, happy to. Dad said you're always right. Mm-hmm. Guess what? They're not always right. And, and you have the belief system that says, I'm allowed to weigh in. I'm allowed challenge their way of thinking. And that comes to the psychology of the sale too. Most salespeople are selling everybody the same way without an appreciation for what ego state does that person operate out of. Is it a critical? Is it a nurturing? Is it an adaptive child, a rebellious child? They don't understand DISC profiles. You guys are probably familiar with the DISC profile. You can't sell a high D dominant the way you would sell a compliant or critical thinker. Mm-hmm. You can't sell somebody who's an influencer, high trust, the same way you would sell somebody who's cynical, pessimistic, and moody, low trust. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out what their DISC style is? If you don't show up wearing their DISC clothes, you're going to have a longer sales cycle from the beginning. If you don't understand that when you move through, like our selling cycle, our seven steps of our Sandler submarine, they're designed with a therapy called transactional analysis in mind. In, in this state, do you have your nurturing parent ego state on? In this compartment, upfront contracts, do you have on your adult ego state? Do you, do you know how to, in the decision step, in the end, you've got to make sure the adult makes the decision, not the child ego state. And how do you do that? How about this move? This is what I do all the time. Hey, Colin, can I try to talk you out of everything we just agreed to? Wouldn't it be a lot easier just to stay with the devil that you know? And I start to try to talk him out of it. Because then you'll hear an adult show up and go, no. No, are you crazy, Tim? This is what we want to do. Okay, good. Now I'm not going to face buyer's remorse. But am I cognizant of that? Do I know how to watch eye movements? I'm, I pay attention to eye movements all the time. If their eyes are going up and to the left, what does that mean? If their eyes are going to their right ear all the time, what does that mean? If their eyes are going down to the ground and they talk slowly, breathe slow from their stomach, what does that mean? You know one of the greatest forms of rapport in synchronicity is matching their breathing. 
Have you ever thought about matching somebody's breathing before in a meeting? Uh -uh. Yeah, it's real cool stuff. But you got to practice it. You got to be aware. Sure. You can't sit there and stare at somebody's chest. Right. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, are you mindful? A program like ours, and you guys got this. It's not going to be psychology 101. It's got to be 501 because you're in a human business, a relationship business. Mm -hmm. And that's where I say people really don't know what the word relationship means. They have no idea what the word rapport means. It gets them in trouble. So I, I do have to ask the opposite. Have you gotten stuck in one of those, those calls too? And stuck means? Um, so uh, you didn't know what to do when. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I explained to you my first four years, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I was blowing calls up right and left. I didn't know yes. if, if there was a big one uh, when you still knew the, the Sandler method, if there's one like, man, that, that's a different one. Like, if, is there one that sticks out to where it's like, that was, that was out of left field? Well, I don't know about left field, but I can recall an instance. I was practicing a Sandler technique called reversing, answering a question with a question. I have a deep-seated belief that no one ever has a real question. They're dying to tell you something, okay. and we just always answer it too quick. So, uh, you know, Colin, you asked me a question. I go, well, that's interesting. How come you asked that? Or, wait a minute, there's something on your face, man. Why'd you <laughs> ask that question right yeah. there? And, um, and more often than not, they'll, they'll say, well, I wanted to tell you that. Well, there was one gentleman I wasn't appreciating high D, dominant, direct, to the point. Mm -hmm. And after about my third or fourth reverse, he said, son, he called me son. I'm 64 years old. Yeah. <laughs> he said, son, I'm a very direct person. I want an answer. Okay. Mm. The meeting was over pretty quick. I mean, I ruptured contact in relationship. And that's another Gestalt um, therapy term. Um, if you rupture contact in a relationship, I kind of was playing a game because I was practicing a skill. Reversing should not be a game. Mm. It should be done very, very honorably and prudently. At the time, I was just trying to see if Sandler worked. Gotcha. And he called me out. I, you know, you know the deal's over. Right. You know, or well, there was never a deal. Um, but I was in trouble from the get-go. Hmm. Interesting. Well, good thing you didn't carry either way. Well, I, can I tell you the truth? Then I did. Okay. Because I got this thing called a wife that was saying, we need money. <laughs> <laughs> you got to win some business. And I, I just Fair didn't, enough. you know, I was practicing. So I am very proud to have blown up more calls mm -hmm. than anybody. I'm very comfortable with failing to win. I'm better now because I took the time to make a lot of mistakes. Learning a new skill, as you guys know, is a, is a neural process. Um, everything we see, hear, and feel is nothing more than electrical discharges and chemical reactions. That's it. And none of us see the world the same way at all. And often, when we try to learn something new, the neural doesn't form. It doesn't connect. And so we go, this is stupid. It doesn't work. And you got to keep blowing it up. Like a golf swing, you know, you spend a lot of money to the pro. You go out there and you put your next 10 shots into the woods. And you say, the pro's an idiot. This doesn't work. And you go back to your, own, your old behavior. But the pro would say, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. As the Colts 
take to the football field pretty soon, practice field, if they're not already there. Those coach, these guys have been playing their entire life. And what does that line coach keep saying over and over? Do it again, mm -hmm. do it again, do it again. They're making tiny mistakes. And what they're trying to do is can we rewire new habits? Mm -hmm. And that's where if a company owner, instead of, Tim, can you fix these people? You know, we got a month. Got to change the numbers in a month. No, no, we're not going to McDonaldize mm -hmm. this process. Behavioral change takes a while. And for me, when I started this business, there was no plan B. That was the first trap. I took all our retirement money, all our savings, and I put it all into this. With Katie's permission, we said, no plan B. You have to make this work. And so, okay, well, Katie, will you give me permission to blow up a few calls of it? Mm -hmm. She said, I'm willing to do that if you're willing to be all in. Mm. And so the clients that we select now and why we won't take hostages, if they're not all in, yeah. that's a recipe for disaster because we as trainers, we're going to be all in. And if you're only 80% in or say, we'll give it a try and see what happens, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, they're going to get a no from me. No college tries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what did Yoda say? No try, do. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that's how it's. That's really what our philosophy is here too. Be patient because we're going to bring somebody in who's really good, Mr. Owner, Mrs. Owner. They're going to go backwards for a while, mm -hmm. but when they come out on the other side, they're going to be really good at what they do. Yeah. Patience. It's interesting you talk about blowing up a bunch of things. I recently had a conversation with a friend. She referred to some, I forget if he was a now high-level speaker or, or what have you, but very successful. And she's like, you know, he talks about, like, he's lost 85% of the deals. Like, why would I want to learn from him? I go, because he's winning on 15%. He's figured out how to really do it because he screwed up 85% of them. You are so right. You're into it. You got, you got this. And so I was like, why, why would you not talk? You want a new now? job here working at my company? <laughs> yeah. uh, my boss may listen. We got to talk off air. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I've talked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's, it's really true. And, and to view that as a success, the number of salespeople that might say to us, but Tim, I don't want to hear a no. Mm -hmm. well, what, what is that? I, I just don't understand. And, and now I don't want to hook up to the old cheap stuff. You've got to hear no nine times before you'll hear a yes. Sure. Oh, I think that's crazy. Sure. Um, there was a book written once. I might still have it over there called, you'll, oh, I shouldn't beat up anybody, an author. They were putting their best thought into it. But it was called something to the effect of you'll never hear no again. Hmm. Bold statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm, sure. I'm, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me try this. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes yes could be under the category of watch what you wish for, because every salesperson probably has a customer or client that they don't like. Does he dream of going down in a fiery plane crash? And um, no, not me. Why don't I take like-minded people or abundant thinkers? One of our qualifications is, do they have a philosophy of abundance? Do they have a growth mindset? If they don't have that, yeah. we're in trouble. Yeah. You can train the rest. Yeah. 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 Wow. If they want to play. Yeah. That's cool. Man. I just like the approach. 
Yeah. I was going to, one thing I wanted to ask about, um, you mentioned earlier in the interview, I want to go towards like sales organizations and the relationship between uh, management and salespeople. You were saying something along the lines of sales managers expect what they tolerate. I wanted to ask you, what is a, what is a healthy relationship between sales management and salespeople look like? What do you think needs to be present for that? Yeah, come on. Let me reverse you. What do you think it is? Uh, I'll answer, but I want you to go first. I think it. I think it starts with communication and honesty. Like, do you understand each other? What may, what you like, what works for you, what doesn't work for you? Really understanding what's going on in your head and communicating that openly. I think that's where I would start. But. And I think there ought to be a real life strategy behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is right. If you help people get what they want, they'll run through a wall of fire for you. Mm-hmm. I've often said personal goals trump business goals. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm the manager, if I'm the leader, if I know what Tim wants, you know, if Tim wants a bass fishing boat more than anything in the world, I'm going to do everything I can to help him grow his sales, and we're going to set aside, say, 2% of the commission on every sales to help him get that. I'm going to personally take him to the bass fishing boat store. I'm going to have him ride in that boat, smell that boat, get all the brochures on that boat I can, because I want him to see, hear, and feel that he is going to attract that into his world. I'm a big fan of the law of attraction. As a man thinketh, so shall he become. And can we get people to think clearly? So to your point, if I can understand and know, create intimacy with my sales team, I'll be more powerful. But then there's another piece. I think sales management underestimates the role of coaching. I think they're guilty of managing. You've heard lots of salespeople say, I don't like to be micromanaged. Uh, I'm sorry, the guy just asked you what you're up to today. (laughs) That's not micromanaging. (laughs) And um, and a lot of people will say that. The role of coaching is altogether different. And great managers should spend, should set aside 35% of their time on the coaching responsibility. And so how do I do my pre-call plan with you? How do I do my debriefing with you? Is it consistent? You know what most sales managers will say? Tim, you just get in the car and ride with me. Watch what I do. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. Tim already hates my guts. And so, you know, he doesn't want to be like me. And, and I don't even know what I did to be successful. So how can I use that as a strategy? Or they'll want to put on their Superman cape when they go into a meeting. And how can they resist that? and just get out of the way, subordinate their ego to the service of their salespeople, and just say things like, what'd you do good? What could you have done better? If you could do it all over again, what Sandler technique would you have applied? I mean, there, there is a way of having that person discover for themselves. And sales manager often just says, well, here's what I would do in that meeting if I were you. Okay, that's expediency, that's short-term thinking, and that's not going to grow new pathways in a salesperson's mind so that they can perform at their best possible level. 
So coaching is um, vastly underestimated. In our sales management program here, we spend a lot of time on the coaching aspect. Mm -hmm. Do you think coaching is what holds sales organizations back the most from reaching their full potential? Or do you think there's other elements in that that contribute to that? Uh, there's other elements. Do I think that's a big piece? Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I could put a number, but you know what really is a big piece of it? Hiring. Mm -hmm. I mean, going with their gut. Yeah. You know, Tim, my son, this guy, he just seemed like he was a great performer. Yes, he was number one on the team selling staple guns. But now you want him to sell a fully automatic, very expensive transmission that costs $400,000 a unit. I'm making up numbers. Mm -hmm. Okay, to make the switch from selling staple guns to fully automatic transmissions, um, it's a very different sale. So things like compatibility, most organizations don't use diagnostics, they don't have uh, their interview processes in place. They have one or two meetings and they go, well, we feel good, okay, well, let's give it a try. And then six months later, they don't understand that it caught, might cost upwards of a million dollars. The cost of a bad hire is very, very expensive. And companies think it's, oh no, we just lost, you know, $70,000 on that first year in, you know, the money we paid. You know, there's a lot more that's being lost than that. Mm -hmm. and the so, sales that they didn't get the that someone else would have gotten. All, all, all those yeah. things. And so hiring really does understanding the DNA of best-in-class performers can really be critical. Mm -hmm. And those sales... They're, they're good at what they do, they're good leaders, they have a good product or service, but guess what piece they forgot? Sales, <laughs> selling. And the reason they hired salespeople? Because they hate selling and sales. Now, not all companies. Some leaders were the sales engine. And, and, and that's a good thing, but those people often don't know how to transfer what they know. A lot of companies will say, okay, Tim, you know, you've been number one on our team. You're the top producer, um, so we're going to make you the sales manager. That's trouble, too. There's a big gap between being a top-performing salesperson and a best-in-class sales leader. Mm. A big gap, and that, companies make that. That's because they, they believe, I owe Colin that. He's been mm -hmm. here for 18 years. Mm -hmm. you know, so we got to give him that or he'll leave. Well, if he was going to leave based on that, you know, maybe that's a good thing. I hope he goes to the competition right. <laughs> right. along the way. So there's, there's a number of gaps mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And I think hiring is a bigger piece than people are aware of. Okay. Uh, Tim Allersma, I have a question for you. How so, has your view on your sales job changed after talking to Tim Roberts? Uh, I think I need to qualify a little bit better after what you said. I mean, I, the way I approach and the way I'm transparent, I think, is the biggest thing I've taken away of how I'm going to apply and how I approach talking to someone for the first time. I think I'm going to approach that a little differently as well. So, yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. I, no. I know you're in the field and I, I, every I'm day. And I'm going to listen to this interview multiple times after we're done. Yeah. Like, not just because I'm going to listen through it again to get the notes and everything, but this is something that I'm going to take very detailed notes on and apply. So yeah, I was say, I've already got a short list to salespeople that like hey if you don't listen to any other episode I ever put out in my life you need this one mm -hmm. yeah. 
They're, uh, I, uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. I, I, one of the things that I just is so darn uh, interesting, if, and this is where I'll give Sandler a lot of credit, and people say this over the years, they've said it in our uh, performance uh, center over here a lot. You know, once you learn Sandler, you never want to go on another call with somebody who's not Sandlerized. Hmm. Because they'll know the difference. Or when we've had, we do not train buyers. I'm on the salesperson side. There's no, no question. But when I've met with companies and the buyer has been a part of the decision-making process, they will often sit there and they will say, it's right. That's what I do to salespeople all the time. Tim, all I have to do is put them on these puppet strings and they'll do everything that I say. Buyers really are, have strategies. You know, do you understand, am I with a average negotiator, a professional negotiator, or a black belt negotiator. Salespeople aren't aware. Buyers are much more aware. Mm -hmm. And buyers, you know, when they sit in our session, they can just say, Tim Roberts, I could pass out your business cards all day long because salespeople don't do that. When people learn Sandler, they never want to go back to their traditional way of doing it ever again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a real credit to Sandler Worldwide and David H. Sandler, who founded our methodology. He really believed that it was an honorable profession, and he really took the time to say, what is the anatomy of a sale? We go to school three times a year ourselves. Iron sharpens iron. And, and we all have a deep-seated belief that on, ongoing learning. Um, I've been offered Lots of jobs over the years. Tim, why don't you just come be the VP of our sales team or help us ramp up this company? You know what my fear is? If I leave Sandler, Sandler will leave me. Mm. And I never want that to happen. Mm. I'm not going back to mediocrity for any reason at all. Stick in your gut. <laughs> yes, yes. And Katie will leave me. <laughs> 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 the real thing behind the yeah, thing. Yeah, the motivation, <laughs> yeah. Proof that there's always a personal impact, yeah, yeah, right? We got there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys are better than me. I guess. <laughs> uh, Tim Allemeyer, anything else for Mr. Roberts here? Um, not right now, no. Yeah, I've, I've had a blast. I think I'm... I'm good on my questions. Uh, Tim, do you have anything else for us? No, I'm, I'm grateful. I, we were talking about at the beginning, one of the things I was intrigued about about what you guys do is your own attachment to curiosity. And, um, and I'm very driven by curiosity. Curiosity is the attitude that drives the opportunity to contribute. For any salespeople out there that are listening, brothers, sisters, get curious. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank, Thank you, you, Tim. <laughs>